you have your Bible, go ahead and open to uh, Exodus chapter 10, uh, Exodus chapter 6, rather, Exodus chapter 6. In the uh, third week of our series in Exodus that's titled God's People and, and God's Plan, and you know, this is a, a fascinating story. As we said from the beginning, this is just a, a gripping narrative. It's one that draws you in. It's a story that is it's full of intrigue. It's full of self-doubt. There's lust for power, slavery, murder. There's a sense of, of divine calling. There's defiance and rebellion. There's idolatry and deliverance. And there's the ultimate revelation of the great I Am. Yahweh, the Lord, will deliver His people from a ruthless and rebellious dictator through the hands, through the imperfect hands of a prince turned shepherd named Moses. It's all the stuff, as we've said from the beginning, it's all the stuff that Hollywood incorporates into their blockbuster films, yet we find this right here in the pages of Scripture. We find this in God's story, but it's not just God's story. Even though this story was, was written thousands of years ago to a people thousands and thousands of miles from where we sit today, it is God's story and it is our story. It's the story of the Israelites who have been fruitful and they've multiplied. God has blessed them during their time in Egypt. They grew and grew and grew to the point that the new Pharaoh began to look around and he saw their strength and he saw their numbers and he began to be frightful of, of what they might become. And so he launches this sinister plot to control and to oppress the, the Israelites. And his plan came in the form, if you'll remember, of three progressive solutions. The first was oppression and slavery. He forced them to, to build their, their supply cities. When that didn't work, he hired out assassins as he told the midwives, as soon as the male children are born, go and kill them immediately. When that didn't work, he issued a nationwide genocide that anyone, no matter who they are, should they come across a Hebrew baby boy, they should kill it. They should take that child and throw it into the Nile. Two weeks ago, as we looked deeper into the story, as the, the cast of characters began to, to develop, as they began to, to enter the stage, we saw some that were very confident as we looked at the, the four or five different women that played roles throughout the story. And then we saw some that weren't as we saw the, the timidness and the, the fear, the excuses in the life of, of Moses. Along the way, we've seen subversion. We've seen God enter the story and issue a divine call from a burning bush. We've witnessed a spectacular failure that, at least for the time being, resulted in more oppression and more suffering. Yet, in, in all of this, there is still a word from God. And it's a word of God that is for both the Hebrews and us. Two weeks ago, as we were wrapping up, we realized that this story, it, it just kind of 
ended abruptly. As Moses and Aaron, they went in and they stood before Pharaoh and they laid out God's demands that you are to let my people go. And Pharaoh was having nothing of it. He wouldn't even acknowledge who their God is. And the result was more oppression, more slavery, more hurt, more pain. Life became absolutely unbearable for the Israelites. And as that chapter closed, the end of chapter 5 closed, there's just sort of this lament where Moses has just experienced this spectacular failure as God has told him to go stand before Pharaoh because he's going to deliver the people and yet Pharaoh says no. He doesn't let the people go. He makes their lives even more difficult. A guy named Terrence Fredham points out that Moses is disenchanted with his task. He's made things worse, but he won't take the blame for it. He puts the blame back on God. And here's how that chapter, here's how that chapter ended. It'll be on the screen right here. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? And, you know, those are valid questions. You know, he is asking God, why have you not done what you said you're going to do? Okay, Moses is in essence saying, I held up my end of the bargain. I went and I stood before the most powerful man in the world, and I said, hey, I'm here on behalf of Jehovah God. Let the people go. And he laughed in my face. And so Moses brings this back and he says, hey, God, what are you doing? I did what I said I was going to do. Why are you mistreating these people? Why did you even send me there? And you know, we, learn a, we can learn a very powerful lesson from a verse just like this. Is that we can take our complaints to God. Okay? So many people are afraid of, of approaching God. So many people are afraid of, of, of when they're hurt or when they're angry or when they're upset or frustrated. They're so afraid to bring those things before God and say, God, this is what I feel like in my life. I feel this injustice. I feel this rage. Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you acted in this way? But as we see from Moses' words and as we read the words of the psalmist, we see that God not only allows for that, it's as if he invites it. Because if he didn't invite it, I don't think we'd be reading about it in the Word. Or at least I think we'd be reading about people who were killed on the spot. But God invites those. And so look at verse 23. Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people. And you have done nothing at all. You have done nothing at all to deliver your people. You know, that's sort of where the, the story ended. It was with this complaint that, that Moses <clears throat> levies before God. But as chapter 6 opens, we see that God is going to respond. He's going to respond first to Moses. And then what you see all the way up to the end of chapter 10 and really even into to 12 and beyond, is you have God responding in a very, very powerful and, and very dramatic way. Responding in ways as He is going to deliver His people. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
Indeed, by a mighty hand, He will let them go. And by a mighty hand, He will drive them. He will drive them out of the land. And then there's this exchange that takes place between God and and Moses in the rest of chapter 6. And then then you have this genealogy where this family line is laid out. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why it's there. But what you realize is that what God is doing is He is reminding, and in some way He seems to be renewing the covenant that He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, the forefathers. When He says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to pull you out of the place where you are and I'm going to set you down in a land that is reserved for you. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's God's land and I'm going to give that to you. And so He renews and reminds Moses of this covenant and then he goes through this genealogy saying, look, you are my people. You're my, you are my chosen ones. You're my priests. You're going to be the ones that, that mediate and minister to the people on, on behalf of me. So then we get into chapter 7. And in chapter 7, you have this, this verse that you may not have ever noticed before. You may have read it, and you probably have read it, But it might be something that stands out to you in a way that you've never seen before. Look at it right here. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now then, it might be very possible that you've read this story before and you've never noticed those words in yellow where God says, When you go before Pharaoh, you are going to be like God. You are going to be God as you, as you speak to Pharaoh. And it's like, you know, once, once you notice this, you realize that as you move through the rest of these plagues, you're no longer seeing this Moses who is intimidated. No longer this Moses who is saying, I can't do this because what if they don't believe me? And what if they're, you know, what if they don't accept what I have to say? And what if we, they don't listen to me because I, I have a speech impediment and this just frightened and, and timid Moses, this, this scared leader, what you see is from this point on that he is speaking with authority. As he goes in, he says, you will let the people go, and if you don't let the people go, here's what's going to happen to you. And not only does he say those things, those things are actually going to happen, and we're going to look at nine of those things Nine of the plagues in just a minute. We're going to put the tenth one off for just a few for, for another week, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But once you realize that, once you sort of grasp this verse right here, and if you wanted to underline something in your Bible, that's a good line. Those words in yellow. I have made you like God. You will be God as you go and you you speak to Pharaoh. And so Moses at age 83 goes again and he stands before Pharaoh and he demands the release of his people. Look at chapter 7, verse verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned wise men and sorcerers and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same By their secret arts, each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs, 
Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord as the Lord had said. What's interesting is that they go in there, let the people go. A sign is given. Moses says, throw the staff down. He, Aaron throws the staff down and it becomes a snake. Pharaoh says, okay, all right, I'll, I'll raise you one. He calls in his magicians. They do the same thing. Have you ever noticed that? That they perform the same exact sign that Moses and Aaron do. They throw their staffs down and they become snakes as well. But did you notice how they did theirs? What did it say? They did, theirs by, they did this, this trick by their secret arts. But then the writer goes on and says something else. That the staff of Aaron then devours theirs. And what we realize is that's a, that's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing because the Egyptians and Pharaoh, eventually, a few chapters down the road, when they try to give chase through the Red Sea, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be devoured by the sea. And so this is a foreshadowing of what is coming. And so now we, we move into the plagues. And like I said a minute ago, we're going to look at nine of the plagues. Now then, as you read this, you realize, oh, wait a minute, that's not all of them. There's, there's ten plagues. But we're going to save that one until next week. And it, you're going to realize that as we look at these plagues, they're kind of grouped in threes. You have the first three, then kind of that second triad of three, then this third triad of, uh, of three. And they're all building toward something which is the climax, which is that tenth plague, that one that everybody knows about, the death of the firstborn, where the angel passes through the land. And if the doorposts are not covered with the blood of the lamb, then the firstborn child dies. And it's sort of the climax, and it's in that moment that, that Pharaoh finally, he finally relents. But today we're going to look at the first nine, and you're going to realize that that as you read them, you know, they're, they're kind of structured not by accident. But you realize as you read this, they present a contrast of the God of creation, the God of order who imposes chaos upon the land of, of Egypt. It's interesting to also notice that the, the relationships of the plagues, you know, you have, uh, and you can kind of pair them off. You have rivers, you have the, uh, the plague that happens in the river, and then you have frogs. You have gnats and flies. You have, uh, you have things that happen to, to animals and, and humans. You have hail and locusts. Both of them come from the sky. And then finally you have darkness and death, and they're kind of tied together. Uh, my, my Exodus professor, Philip Camp, he says this. As he's talking about the plagues, he says that commentators, commentators have often offered natural explanations for the plagues. Often seeing natural disasters theologized into the work of God, but the text makes it plain by the use of commands and the timing and the starts and the ends of the plagues that the reader should see these as works of God, not just coincidences of nature. What you also see as we work through these plagues is that you have God... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the, 
the God of, of heavens and earth, you have God, capital G, versus God's, little g, including Pharaoh, because Pharaoh was considered to be a god. You have Yahweh, who is the, the master of creation, and His sovereignty is going to be shown. You have Pharaoh, who has usurped Yahweh's dominion by enslaving and dehumanizing people. Therefore, God is going to unleash His creation upon Pharaoh. God is going to unleash chaos on the order of creation, though never out of His control, in order to demonstrate the emptiness of Pharaoh's or the Egyptian God's supposed control. Creation itself is caught up in sin and is harmed by it. Thus, God uses creation to undo some of the evil effects created by Pharaoh. So now let's look at these first, let's look at these first three, the first triad of plagues. And you know, you think of a plague and and nothing good comes to mind when you hear the word plague, right? I mean, there's nothing good about a plague. If someone tells you you're a plague or you're the bringer of plague, you know, they're saying basically stay away from me. Okay? If someone says a plague upon your house, you know, you have done something pretty bad to them. Okay? You don't want to be associated with a plague. Okay? Yet that's what Pharaoh is, and he is going to just continue to invite these plagues as he continues to rebel against God, as he continues to, to harden his heart. And eventually he's going to harden it so much that the text is going to turn, and we're going to see this in a few minutes, where it says that finally God hardened his heart. And what that means is it's not God being mean, it's that you can get to a point where you're so far away from God, you're so rebellious that God's just going to say, okay, go. If that's the way you want to do this, I'm going to let you do this. Okay, I'm going to give yourself over to whatever it is that you think is the best way to live your life. And you're going to see that happen. You'll see that transition as we move through these different plagues. And so you have these, these first three, and the first is the plague of blood. Then you have the plague of frogs. And then you have the plague of gnats. Now then some of these, you're going to say, hey, we live in the south. We understand what these plagues are. Okay? Especially when I suggest what one of these might be in, in just a minute. But you have this first one that, that happens in the middle of, of chapter 7, and it's the plague that, where, where Moses turns water to blood. And what he does is he goes down to the, to the Nile River and he stretches out his hands, and it says that all of the water, all of the water, the Nile River, all the water in Egypt turned to blood. Now can you imagine what that would do? What would that do to a, a, a local economy? Okay, it would bring it to a, a screeching halt. And, and the Bible is clear in saying that the river stank. You know? Blood has a very distinct smell, doesn't it? You know, it has a distinct taste. Okay? Blood, you can't get out of things very easily. And now this, this, this blood is, is everywhere. Okay, so what is Moses? He, he, he does this, and Pharaoh's response is, okay, well, let me call in my magicians. Okay, they, they matched you the last time. And so he calls his magicians in, and somehow they're able to find some water that must not be turned to blood yet, and they do the same thing. They turn 
that blood to water. And so Pharaoh's like, okay, well, you know, I can do that too. Yeah, you claim your God can do that. Well, I'm a God too. Let me show you. And he commands his magicians. And they go and they do the same thing. And what we realize is that when we're... When you see God turning the water to blood, He is taking aim at some of these Egyptian gods. These Egyptian gods that were over some of these things. And so the God that He's taking aim at right here is Hapi, the God of the Nile. And Osiris, who reveals Himself in an annual indunation of of the Nile. The result is not that Pharaoh is amazed, but it's that he hardens his heart. Okay, and that's what you see. You see this pattern. Moses comes in and he says, if you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. Pharaoh does not listen. And then what Moses said happens. And at the end, usually you have this same phrase. It ends up with Pharaoh having the hard heart. Or either God having hardened Pharaoh's heart because he's been continuously rebellious. Well, then you move on to the next plague, and that's the... The plague of frogs. Frogs everywhere. Frogs in your houses. Okay? Frogs when you eat. Frogs when you sleep. Frogs when you go to the bathroom. Every step you take is a crushing step of, an, of another frog. Imagine what that is like as you sit down, as you lie down, as you roll over. You are completely surrounded by frogs. No no inch of the ground is, is uncovered. These frogs are, are everywhere. And so again, the same thing happened. Moses is before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh calls in the magicians, and guess what they do? By their secret art, more frogs appear. There's more frogs, and they are, they are everywhere. Eventually, Moses calls them off. All the frogs die. Now then, you thought the blood probably stank. Imagine what millions and millions and millions of frog carcasses smell like. Polluting the land. And here they are. Moses is... Moses is... is, is <laughs> you can only imagine what this is like as he's coming and he's saying, look, if you don't listen, I mean, why don't you just listen to what God says? Because if you don't, this is just going to get worse. Yet Pharaoh is stubborn. He's going to allow it to get worse. And so God takes aim. The God he takes aim at this time is Heket. This is the goddess who assists women in labor. She is portrayed as having the, the head of a frog. The result is the same. Pharaoh hardens his heart. So then you have the third plague. And it's gnats. Now then, we might say, no, wait a minute. We understand that one. We get this one. Okay? Because we have a lot of gnats, do we not? Okay? And you know what gnats are like. Okay? They get in your eyes. They get in your nose. They go for all the mucous membranes of your body. Okay? They buzz around your ears. And they're absolutely annoying. Right? I mean, that should have been a big amen. I mean, does anybody here like gnats? Nobody does. Now then, it says that Moses takes some dust and he throws it in the air and it becomes gnats. And they are everywhere. They cover, they cover the entire, they had covered the entire land of Egypt. Now then, there are some that also say that it's, uh, 
It's just flying insects that it's not just gnats, but it's also mosquitoes. Yeah. And there's others that say it's not just gnats and it's not just mosquitoes, but it's lice as well. It's all of these insects that are attacking you everywhere that are just bringing this pestilence. Mosquitoes that, that constantly bite. Have you ever been out in the woods and you just cannot get away from the mosquitoes? Imagine that multiplied by about a million. And you're probably just getting close to what the Egyptians were experiencing. And if it's lice, if you've ever had a child with lice, and those of you that are teachers, I know that you've dealt with at school as you've had a kid come in and just the, the, the trouble that that brings as you have to go through and you're searching kids' heads and you have to use peanut butter and rid and all of those things, just trying to, to get rid of this. And that's what they're dealing with on a daily basis. All because Pharaoh is hard-hearted. All because he doesn't want to listen. He doesn't, he doesn't want to relent. Now then, this is interesting. The dust of the earth, they become these gnats or mosquitoes or lice or, or all of the above. Pharaoh does what he's always done. He calls in the magicians because they're three for three. Okay, they've been able to match sort of sign or plague for plague with Moses and Aaron. And he's thinking, okay, well, we'll just do this again. And so he calls in his magicians. Now then, watch verse 18 and 19. It'll be on the screen. The magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, but notice the yellow, but they could not. There were gnats on both humans and animals. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them just as the, just as the Lord had said. They finally realized, wait a minute, we are out of our league here. This is beyond us. This is bigger than what we are. This, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We're going up against a power that we cannot match. It's as if God was toying with them through the first three. And now God is going to say, okay, you thought you were something? Watch as I unleash my power. Watch as I unleash these, these plagues upon Egypt that are ultimately going to reveal my glory and, and my power. And there's a, there's a scholar by the, the, the name of Larson, and he he connects the, the finger of God with Seth, the opponent of the gods, who tries to destroy Horus. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting to note that you have these magicians who are called in, and you know they're, they're trying to match up with Moses and Aaron, and they end up doing what they do. You know, they match them, you know, snakes for snakes, you know. Water to blood, they're able to do that one. Frog to frogs. All trying to prove Pharaoh. All trying to, to make things better, but all they do is they make things worse. Because they do is create more snakes. All they do is add more blood to the situation. All they do is add more frogs. Equally compelling is to note the power by which each group does these things. It says over and over again that Pharaoh's magicians, they perform theirs by these secret arts, yet Moses and Aaron, they do theirs by the, the power of God. 
There's a dichotomy at play here. This is God versus Pharaoh. This is the... This is a man who believes that he is more powerful than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a man who believes that he is the supreme ruler in all of the world and that there is no one greater than he is. And then the finger of God just sort of touches the situation. And things in Egypt are going to begin to to drastically change. And so that's the first. So we move into the, the second triad of these three plagues where we have flies and livestock and boils and flies. You know, that one to me, this is a plague that I fight all the time. Okay? I, I'm just going to say this. I hate flies. I mean, I, I hate flies. Okay? As soon as there's a fly in my house, I drop whatever it is that I'm doing and I go, it is seek and destroy. Okay, and with whatever I've got, you know, a, a towel, a fly swatter, a shoe, a hand, a child, no matter what it is, whatever I can get my hands on, I'm going to use to kill a fly because I hate flies. Okay, I hate these things. Okay, and just like the frogs and just like the gnats and just like the blood, the, frog, the, the, the flies are everywhere. Except that we have this one little note that says, except in Goshen. Goshen is the place where God's people are, where the Hebrews stay. It's as if God is saying, look at here, I'm sanctifying my people. I'm going to show you that this just isn't a natural disaster, that, that I am working, okay? That it's not just everybody that is affected, it is just the Egyptians. My people, they're safe in Goshen. They're not being, they're not being affected by all of these plagues. And so God sets them apart, and again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Well, then you have the fifth plague, and it's the disease of the livestock. And this is where uh, God begins to, to go after the economy of Egypt. He strikes their livestock with all of this, uh, this, this disease. He's going after the Egyptian gods of Hathor, the sun goddess, which is represented by a, a cow with solar discs between its horns, and, and Apis, the fertility god, which is represented by a bull image yet pharaoh still will not listen he hardens his his heart once again and so that brings us to the sixth plague and it's the plague of boils these these open festering sores that are very very painful i don't know if any of you have ever experienced a boil or not but from what you read and what you hear about it it is just an absolutely miserable experience okay there's another Play, uh, there's, there's another person that we read about in Scripture that had boils, you remember him, by the name of Job, okay? And he used to sit, remember how he used to sit in the ground and he would take a broken piece of pottery and he would just kind of scrape the infection out of those boils, okay? And he would let dogs come and just kind of clean them, just kind of lick all of that clean, okay? This is what the Egyptians are dealing with. Their bodies are completely covered uh, completely covered with boils. Now then, some have suggested that what this is is skin anthrax or possibly even smallpox. The magicians make a, another appearance in this part of the story, but this time they know they are outmatched. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that they couldn't even stand before Moses because of all of the boils. Because they were in, in such pain. 
But this time, this time, Pharaoh is not the one who hardens his heart. Look at, uh, look at chapter 9, look at verse 12. It says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And again, this is where God is just saying, Okay, Pharaoh, if you want to do things your way, I'm going to let you do things your way. If you're going to continue to rebel, if you're going to continue to turn from me, if you're going to continue to reject what it is that I'm trying to do, then I'm just going to turn you over into that, and you're going to have to suffer the consequences of that. And so the Lord allows him to go off and allows him, allows him to do this. And so that brings us to the third the third triad of these plagues, and the, the, which is actually the seventh plague, and is the plague of hail. This plague is sent, chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. God is saying, the reason I'm doing this is so that you recognize my power, you recognize my reign, you recognize my, my sovereignty. Now then, some of the animals are allowed to be brought in. Okay, because it says this hail came down on all the livestock and all the people that didn't seek shelter. And somebody pointed out that, that this is you know, God showing concern for needless loss of, of human and animal life. But this is the, this is the first plague that expl explicitly suggests that, uh, that there's a loss of life that takes place. Pharaoh's officials, they've begun to fear God by now. They've begun to realize, hey, this is the finger of God. This is something that is greater than us. And they begin to, to, to plead with Pharaoh. And they, they begin to shelter their livestock. And for the first time, we see the first signs of, of change in Pharaoh. Peter N. says that this is the point that we've been expecting, that this is the first real compliance without any strings attached. However, Pharaoh, again, is going to harden his heart. He's going to sin again Pete N says that Moses in a strong show of force under normal circumstances would have sealed his own fate he calls Pharaoh's bluff because in verse 27 Pharaoh has called Moses and Aaron in and he says this time I have sinned this time i'm wrong this time i recognize that i have done what i'm not going what i've not i've done what i should not have done i've been rejecting the word of the lord and so you see that okay well maybe something is starting to happen here maybe he's starting to loosen up maybe there's starting to be a, a little bit of a change but then you drop down to verse 30 but as for you and your officials i know that you do not fear the lord yet and Moses Moses calls his bluff to do that to any kind of world dictator is a sure death sentence but God is with Moses the Egyptian God that's under attack here is men this is the fertility God of crops the result is the same 
hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so then there comes verse, uh, then there comes the plague of the locusts, plague number eight in chapter 10. Again, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So God sends locusts and they devour any remaining crops. Pharaoh's officials in verse 7, they begin to plead with Pharaoh to wise up, to please listen, to relent. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, but only the men. He becomes angry with Moses and he drives he and Aaron out from his presence. Verses 14 and 15 say that the locusts the locusts began to cover the land. The locusts came upon all Egypt and they settled on the whole country. Such dense swarms of locusts as had never been seen before nor ever shall be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was black and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Nothing green was left. No tree, no plant in the field in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh confesses sin this time. He says, I've sinned. And so Moses pulls back and he says, okay, the locusts are going to be gone. And God sends this wind and it sweeps away all the locusts out to the Red Sea. And guess what? That's not just there because that's a good story. It's there because it's a foreshadowing. Okay, just as all the locusts are drowned in the Red Sea, it's this foreshadowing of what is coming with the continual hardening of the heart of Pharaoh, that eventually it's going to be he that is drowned in the Red Sea, that it's going to be his army, it's going to be his people. Again, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's hearts. And that brings us to the ninth plague, verses, verses 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. You ever been in a darkness like that? A darkness that's just, just felt, it's just complete, it's all engulfing. This darkness is completely covering the, the land of, of Egypt. Philip Camp says that the darkness is a reversal of the initial act of, of creation as the Egyptian sun god Ra is attacked. Pharaoh is a sun and a representative of this God. This time Pharaoh is going to allow all to leave and worship the Lord except the livestock. Moses is going to refuse. He's going to say that we have to have our livestock. We have to be able to make sacrifices to God. And it's at this point that Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's audacity reaches new heights. Verse 27 says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care that you do not see my face again, for the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, Just as you say, I will never see your face again. He's saying, Get out. If you come back, you are a dead man. 
by Moses responding, saying, okay, you'll never see my face again. What he's saying is, okay, you've got your wish. You've made your bed. You get to lie in it. However, it's not Moses that's going to end up dead. Pete Enns points out that by doing this, Pharaoh is cutting off the only means of his salvation. He goes on to say that by having Pharaoh cast Moses out of his presence, in effect, he is casting God out of his presence. And so this is the last time that Moses is going to go and demand the release of his people. He's gone in over and over and over and over again, and each time it's had almost the same result. Either Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or God kind of washing his hands of the situation and, and hardening the heart of Pharaoh. But every time we see the defiance of, of Pharaoh, finally to the point where he threatens the life of Moses. But remember, now Moses is the one who speaks for God and as God to Pharaoh. And so in a sense, he is threatening God. And so Pharaoh says, Moses says, okay, if this is the way you want it, this is the way you can have it. You will never see my face again. And he departs. Chapter 10 closes, and then that leads us into the plague that everyone knows about. It's the plague of the firstborn, and we'll spend a lot of time on that one next week. So you wonder, we look at these, these plagues, and there's, there's so much more to them than what we've been able to cover this morning. But we wonder, what does this story mean? How is this story, how is this story a word for us? And I think it's, I think it's simply this, and it'll pop up here on the screen. It's as if God is saying to us, trust me, I've got this. I am the Lord God of all creation. I am the God who is above all other gods, and my reign is sovereign. My reign is complete. While other forces threaten and, and harass an attempt to overtake and occasionally gaining significant victories, it is God who will claim the ultimate final victory. His plan will ultimately succeed, and we can take hope in this when it seems that all that we do is met with discouragement and failure. God has this. God wins in the end. In the words of, of Randy Harris, God's side wins. Pick a side and don't be stupid. It's so simple. But that's God's word to us. God wins. No matter what the world throws, no matter what the, the gods of the world throw at us. I mean, in, in Wednesday night, there's a class going on that is talking about the different gods of the world. Okay, no what comes at us, we can trust in the fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, you and me, that God, the God of the heavens, wins. Okay? We want to make sure we're on the winning side. Right? So make sure you pick the winning side. The winning side is 
God's side. And so now we're going to, we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing Mighty to Save because we believe that God is mighty to save. As the song says, everyone needs compassion. We know that to be true. Everyone needs healing. Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs a touch of God in their life. The God of Moses, the God who delivered His people, is ready to deliver His people still today. We don't face the plagues that Moses and the Egyptians were living through. But we face plagues of a different kind. Plagues of, of spiritual oppression and plagues of, of spiritual darkness. And God wants to liberate us from those plagues. He wants to reveal to you and to me His glory. And the way He did it was by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that He can release us from those things that plague us. There's nothing else that can save us. And that's why we sing God is mighty to save. Okay? There's nothing else that can save, but our God can save. And so maybe that's where you are. Maybe you are kind of feel like you're just kind of swamped. Maybe you feel like you're overtaken by all of these, these different things. Maybe the gods of the world have led you away from where you're supposed to be. Don't allow your heart to continually harden. Have a soft heart that is welcoming of Jesus and His Word. Be open to the words and the compassion and the embrace and the grace of, of Christ Jesus because He is mighty to save. If we can help you, if we can pray for you, if we can baptize you into Jesus this day, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing Mighty to Save.